This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. On the programme this week, we hear from broadcasting boss Cam Wallace. He bailed out of a top job at the National Airline during the COVID crisis to take charge at MediaWorks late last year. But he had turbulence there when whistleblowers lifted the lid on a corrosive culture at the company and talk radio hosts going rogue on issues of race and COVID-19 earlier this year didn't help much either. And then there's the small business of staying in business in tight times for the media without the TV channels, which were a core part of the company from the beginning. Also, we'll look at how a travel bubble with Australia was a good news story for our media, in spite of some doubts about the possible benefits. But first, how the death of the Duke of Edinburgh this weekend came at a bad time for newsrooms here. And joining us now is Simon O'Connor, Monarchy New Zealand's spokesperson. Thank you very much for joining us here. Let's go back to where this union began, I guess, and when um, the Queen and Prince Philip met each other. Well, I'm sure you're not implying that I was around at the time. But I'm sure you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's one of those wonderful love stories. Simon O'Connor there on News Hub's 90-minute special on Saturday morning, marking the death of Prince Philip. And while he was indeed representing the outfit which campaigns to preserve New Zealand's ties to the monarchy and having a head of state in the UK, Simon O'Connor's day job is representing us. He's also the Member of Parliament for Tamaki. And he went on to tell Melissa Chan-Green that the Duke of Edinburgh's dedication to duty was respected by Kiwis, even younger ones. I don't know if you've been on social media, but particularly our young people, just post after post after post about him. So, I mean, his legacy will go on. But half an hour earlier, historian Jock Phillips had told News Hub Special the Duke's death would make little difference and he didn't expect to see the younger generation in any great numbers at any upcoming memorial service. And therein lay the dilemma for our media too this weekend, especially the broadcasters, how much fuss to make of the news for an audience that's either really sad about it or pretty ambivalent. And another hurdle was the timing of the news itself. Very late on a Friday night going into a Saturday morning when most newsrooms are not well geared up to fire up special coverage from scratch. On RNZ National, Knight's host Brian Crump broke the news like this after 11pm on Friday. Because I have some sad news for you. The Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, has died. He was 99 and had been married to the Queen since 1947, when she was still Princess Elizabeth. And for those waking up to the news on Saturday morning, there was a morning report special with Susie Ferguson from 7 till 8, after which Kim Hill kicked off her show with Victoria Arbiter from a family whose royal punditry, like the royal family itself, is intergenerational. But while News Hub pulled out all the stops with that full special from 8am, leading into more on its weekly show News Hub Nation at 930 TVNZ, whose older demographic you'd think would be keen for coverage, had nothing except for a ticker announcing his death over the advertorial shows that it usually runs for hours every Saturday morning. And also, after that, the poorly produced paid-for religious programming. The one on TVNZ1 when NewsHub special kicked off on 3 was actually telling viewers to turn their backs on secular media, popular with Pentecostals in the United States. Let us go to this very short video and I'll be right back. Fast of Daniel is the abstinence from all secular information such as media, entertainment, music and literature for 21 days with the aim of achieving something greater, the Holy Spirit. 
TVNZ only got a full special on air at midday on Saturday, crossing first to their London correspondent Daniel Faitawa outside in the pitch dark. Daniel, we are already seeing so many tributes the world over, but I imagine it would have been quite extraordinary being in London today. Yeah, there's been a sombre and reflective mood here, Melissa. And it might have been good to see those extraordinary things earlier when they were happening, not at 1am local time when there was nothing going on in London. The timing of the announcement, though, was even worse for the papers here, which were well past their deadlines for the weekend editions. The Weekend Herald managed to fill the front page with a full story in the late editions, but nothing more inside, and the Weekend editions of Stuff's papers, like the Press and the Dominion Post, could only manage one small story on the front page to mark the Duke's death before the papers were printed. Now in Australia, the time difference was much kinder for its papers, as Sydney correspondent Emma Cropper told the News Hub special. Uh, several pages of a special inside that one. Uh, and this one here, a beautiful photo on the front page of the Saturday Telegraph uh, with the headline, Good Night Prince. And in the UK, the papers had plenty of time to push the boat out. The conservative Daily Mail tabloid, for example, published what it called an historic 144-page tribute, in addition to what it called a magical souvenir magazine. But there was, of course, no shortage of stuff for our news publishers to pile onto their websites. But not all of it was what you might call a tribute, as Susie Ferguson made plain running through other stuff in the world's press, including the UK's Independent. It has published a list of 90 of the Duke's most excruciating gaffes. Uh, I think they first published this on his 90th birthday, if I remember rightly. They did indeed recycle that nearly 10-year-old piece. And here, the Herald didn't pass up the opportunity to run it again on their site as well. But embedded in that by the Herald was a fascinating obituary for Al Jazeera, pointing out that many of those gaffes were very racist and more or less forgiven by the UK media in a way that a politician, for example, could never expect. And one of the journalists who called out that racism at the time said that the Prince wasn't averse to a bit of media criticism himself. I remember once uh, he wandered over after he'd uh, said to an Aboriginal leader, do you still throw spears at each other? And I saw him do this in Australia in 2002. And uh, the next day he came over, it made front pages all over the world. And he just wandered over and said, the trouble with you is you've got no sense of humour, a complete absence of humour. So he wasn't going to apologise. The conduct that made him the Duke of Hazard, as News Hub's London correspondent Lloyd Burr put it, was waved away by monarchy man Simon O'Connor MP on TVNZ's special on Saturday. He said some stupid things, um, some terrible things at times, but actually that's who he was. He was a straight talker, and actually when you put the gaffes alongside all the incredible things he uh, did... The gaffes are just a very, very small part of it. But for those who aren't fans of the royal family, media reporting that stuff down the years was far more damaging to its reputation than those who are royal family fans tend to believe. And that was a point TVNZ sportscaster Andrew Savile made, just in passing, on News Talk ZB's Saturday morning with Jack Tame show. Although in the latter years he did become sort of like the wonky old great uncle on Christmas Day, didn't he? Well, look, to be perfectly honest, I think there were a lot of people who would have found... um, some of his uh, some of his comments over the years quite refreshing. <laughs> refreshing is possibly not the word Jack Tame was really looking for, but he did add an important bit of context straight after that. The man who's been labelled out of touch and now out of time was for decades under the kind of media microscope that would make very few people look good. If I was um, filmed and recorded everywhere I went, as everyone in that yes. family is, I would probably get myself yeah, into trouble yeah. fairly regularly yes. as well. So... Uh, Especially if you make it into your 90s. Yeah, yeah.
Cam Wallace probably thought his life was going to get a bit simpler when he signed up as the chief executive of MediaWorks late last year. Running radio networks in an outdoor advertising outfit probably seemed a lot less stressful than being at Air New Zealand, where he was overseeing mass job losses and a catastrophic slump in revenue brought on by COVID-19. But in his first few months in charge at MediaWorks, he's had a rough ride after whistleblowers lifted the lid on instances of harassment and claims that his company's culture had turned toxic. And some of his talk radio hosts going rogue didn't help much either earlier in the year. Now, when all that was in the headlines, MediaWatch asked Cam Wallace to come in and talk about it all and what he's going to do about it. He declined at the time, but this week he did sit down with MediaWatch's Hayden Donnell. When Cam Wallace was announced as MediaWorks' new chief executive, the statement he released sounded exuberant. He couldn't wait, it said, to meet the team and get started. Within a week or two of getting started, he was dismissing one of those team members and guaranteeing they would never work for the company again. Wallace made that decision to fire John Banks from his role as a fill-in announcer on Magic Talk after the former Auckland mayor described Māori as a Stone Age people in an on-air exchange with a racist caller. More recently, Wallace has appointed Maria Jew QC to carry out an inquiry into MediaWorks culture after accusations of workplace bullying and harassment surfaced on social media and in reporting by Stuff's Alison Moore. I spoke to Cam Wallace earlier this week about the last few months and how he sees the company building a brighter, more controversy-free future. Yeah, well, it wouldn't be hard to determine a, a less troubled industry because aviation having its worst year ever and having its revenue completely wiped out, it was you know truly a hellish year. So you know any industry looked pretty positive relative to that. Having said that, within a few weeks you were weathering your first scandal involving the business. So two weeks in, John Banks takes a call from a racist caller. He says something pretty much equally racist in reply. You dismiss John Banks. Now, the timeline that the information came out made it seem like that was in response to advertiser pressure. You had telcos pulling out of the business, that kind of stuff. Was that the actual timeline that you made it in response to advertiser pressure? Absolutely not. And that has been... Uh, misread really. We uh, made that decision really, really quickly as soon as we became aware of that content circulating online. I was in a taxi slash Uber on the way back to the office. A meeting was already taking place and within 30 odd minutes of us finding out we'd made that decision quite quickly. And and, and in fact that's one of the easiest decisions you can make because it was so adhorrent, was so unacceptable and so dislocated to the culture we want to create that it was quite an easy decision actually. I know you'd just been in the role two weeks or something. You must have known John Banks' history and stuff that he said before, and maybe this was expected then. Uh, was that not something that had registered with you at the time? No, it hadn't registered with me that, one, that uh, he was ever going to say comments like that. I don't think anyone would anticipate that kind of poor behaviour. He's said pretty unrepeatable stuff in the past, so you must have known that he had form. Everyone knows people's history and form, but in terms of the day-to-day operations of those studios and the ways that we kind of bring people on and part-time, you know, clearly if we had our time again, would we employ John for a week or two weeks? No, we wouldn't. So that's that's an issue we've dealt with now and we need to move on and make sure there's some, you know, deeper analysis in terms of the people we bring onto the show, any show really. With John Banks, you kind of drew a line in the sand, right? You're saying this is absolutely unacceptable, outright racism, not acceptable. Do you have a formal policy now on where the lines are in terms of stuff that you just can't say, topics you can't uh, take that kind of radical view on? We've got policies and procedures that cover 
you know, broadcasting standards, and then obviously we are um, exposed to the Broadcasting Standards Authority. But as part of the work that Marie is doing on our culture review, that will be encapsulating our standards, our code of conduct, the way we work at MediaWorks. So that will be involved in that process in the in the in the months to yeah, come. Yeah, like for instance, the Broadcasting Standards Authority yep. that has a series of standards yep. that are not acceptable, you know, hate speech, that kind of thing. Yep. Is that is there going to be something like that that you're going to actually work out internally? Uh, we have currently systems and processes, but there'll be a more formalisation of that as we go through the review process, and we'll be transparent about that with the market. So we're looking to release the formal review on our culture, and as part of that, we'll be having a number of recommendations, and included in that will be, you know, was it accepted or what will we talk about, what we won't talk about. How agnostic are you on stuff that misinforms your audience, especially when it's on topics that have been the subject of pretty widespread agreement? Um, I mean, I think that's a really quite difficult one because there are, you know, if you if you take my personal views on climate change or vaccines, I mean, I think there is a unity ticket that most people on that those things uh, need to be administered and or are real. But we still have to have an open and vibrant exchange of ideas. We're not going to agree with a whole bunch of people who ring up, but as long as they're respectful and as long as we're not promoting a certain uh, view to our listeners, I think that's one of those subjective areas where we've just got to use our judgment. And sometimes our judgment will be wrong and we'll get it wrong and we'll have to face up to those mistakes. It's interesting you say climate change, you say vaccines, because that's really Peter Williams' Yep. areas where he's yep. been criticised recently. He's the Magic Talk morning host. Now, he is on record as a climate denier. He wrote an article, I am so over the nonsense that is being propagated by politicians and policy makers about this thing that is now just referred to as climate change. Now, when he speaks on that pretty important issue, probably yep. the biggest story in the world, you know mm. that his views are going to be misinforming your audience, essentially. You know, even in Australasia, there's elected politicians who have similar views on climate change. Climate change is an area I think is that is going to continue to be talked about. But it's, I mean, the facts are clear, and this is not about um, economics. This is about science. I mean, you know, my view is that the facts are clear, but there's always going to be people who have different views to you or I. Well, I mean, Peter Williams has different views to that. He's saying that the science isn't clear. So, I mean, just for instance, on that topic, I mean, how how different is that to someone 70 years ago being like, cigarettes don't cause cancer? How different is what Peter Williams is saying about climate change to someone saying that 70 years ago? Yeah, I'm not sure that analogy is quite appropriate. I, mean, I think that we give our audience credit for being smart having their own views, they can ring up. I mean, TalkBack is actually quite a small percentage of what MediaWorks is as a business. And I don't think we are ramming one certain opinion down the throat of our listeners. I, I just don't think that's the case. The, the other thing that he mm. has been criticised for yeah. is some of the anti-vax stuff. Anti-vaxxers love Peter Williams. I know that you say that he's not an anti-vaxxer. He's well, he, had, he's, he's said that himself. That he's not one? Yes. He's, having said that, he had a whole show where he invited on a whole bunch of people to share their concerns about the yep. COVID-19 vaccine. Yep. Yep. Uh, he's had the anti-vaxxer Sue Gray on repeatedly, yep. Voices for Freedom, an anti-vax group. They love him. They keep saying that he's one of the best broadcasters yep. in New Zealand. The evidence is sort of piling up here that at least anti-vaxxers see Peter Williams as their friend. Is that something that you can responsibly broadcast given the importance of people getting the COVID-19 vaccine 
Um, I, I think that falls into there's different views from different people in the community about whether or not they should uh, take the vaccine. Look, if there's a vaccine here, I'd take it right now, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and many, many, many people would. But some of my friends are quite surprised about uh, making a decision not to for health reasons or age reasons. But isn't, pre- that, isn't that something that you as a broadcaster, as people with a huge platform, should actually be trying to address responsibly uh, and encourage people to take it rather than actually sowing discord and doubt further? Oh, I don't think we're sowing discord and doubt. We've got... Nine, Peter Williams no, had a whole show where he yeah, essentially but got, did. But if you look at the amount of content we have across the number of platforms, I think we can justify promoting an open and robust exchange of ideas. It doesn't mean that we agree with the people on the show. It doesn't mean we agree with the callers. But at the end of the day, we've got to be a platform which is open to having that exchange of views. I mean, if, if we go down the line of saying, oh, we're not going to talk about COVID-19 or vaccines, it's going to be a pretty uninteresting show. No one's saying that, right? But if you're going to talk about COVID-19 and vaccines, then surely, surely if you're going to talk about those things, then you don't want to elevate the views of people that uh, have unscientific takes on it and have, I mean, potentially harmful. If people don't take the vaccine, then people could die. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, as I've said before, um, Peter is not anti-vaccines. Uh, he's stated that publicly. Um, he's, you know, you've stated the people. He's had some people on the show, some callers uh, who have different views. We don't support those views, but what we are supporting is an open exchange of views. Mm. Now, you told the Herald that you're actually looking at that Magic Talk segment. We're that... still on Magic Talk. Yeah, but... <laughs> And that you might be setting up a new station or two. Can you expand on that? So we are in the middle of a strategic review of our business because MediaWorks is actually a new business. We've got two profitable and stable parts of the media industry. And how do we want to grow and how do we want to develop those assets? And one of the options is starting up um, some, you know, developing some new stations. Mm. Probably in four to six weeks, we'll be able to inform the market about what our pathway is. Before Magic Talk, you had Radio Live, obviously, which was a bit more of a diverse range of voices. And then Magic Talk was essentially an effort to go into that space that had been vacated when someone like Leighton Smith went off the air. I mean, are you going to go back to something more like Radio Live or is it going to be a split off? It's a good question and we don't have the answers because we're analysing a range of options. What I would say is this is radio or audio businesses need to change as the country's changed. So things that are acceptable from an advertising perspective or content perspective now are very, very different to what was acceptable five or ten years ago. If I, if I look at aviation experience, what we, we always used to look at Virgin Atlantic and they actually have tremendous brand campaigns. If I relook at those brand campaigns now, you would never put them to wear because society has changed. And MediaWorks and our business wants to change with society. So we want to be modern and we want to be contemporary and we want to be positive. Second order of business. The second big thing that has come up in your very short tenure as the chief executive. What prompted you to set up this inquiry by Maria Ju QC into MediaWorks Culture? What influence did there's some anonymous social media posts and also Alison Moore's reporting yep. about MediaWorks Culture? Yep. What influence did they play? Oh, yeah, they, they had some influence. It wasn't 
total influence. We want to be proactive in terms of understanding what our culture has been and is and what we want it to be in the future. The culture review is looking back three years, which is the recommendation from Maria, to see what is the actual culture at MediaWorks. But then most importantly, it's going to be what can we make it and what recommendations will she give us so we can create a really inclusive and positive culture. Now, those terms of reference have been criticised. I haven't seen the criticism of it. Okay. Yeah. So the criticism is that 2018 is not long enough. Yeah, so that was a recommendation from Maria. I mean, that's long enough to give her enough context and history, but also short enough that it doesn't take a year, right? So this will take three or four months, and we don't want this dragging on and on and on. We've made it three years, and that was the recommendation that she gave us, so we went with it. The concern is that some of these issues have been long-standing For instance, in 2017, The Rock was auditioning its newsreaders in bikinis. Hmm. I mean, this is one year prior to the expiry date on your terms of reference. There's going to be people from years past that are going to feel like they can't contribute to this inquiry. Can you expand it out? Oh, look, we've made a decision to make it three years because that was the recommendation. If you make it five years, there'll be someone who has has an incident six years ago. If we make it six years, presumably there'll be someone seven years ago. Look, Maria's been pretty open, so if people are wanting to go to her with um, suggestions, commentary, she'll be open to that anyway. The reality is we're actually leaning into this process of culture Uh, We're spending a lot of money on the review. We're serious about it. We're not shying away from it. So, you know, I take issue with people saying, hey, you know, the terms of reference aren't broad enough or the time frame isn't broad enough because actually we've taken the advice from independent uh, professionals on how we should run this process. Just to calm people's fears about the terms of reference, are you willing to publish them publicly no, be the, upfront about yeah, them? they're on our website. Okay. They're listed on our website and they're broad and encompassing. We're wanting people to come forward. I remember when the John Banks story came out, you actually put out a statement to that effect. Well, you know, we know this culture is great. Yep. This is an aberration. Is that something that you still think? Yeah, I do. Th- I do think the culture is really positive and creative, like any organisation, Uh, there'll be pockets of behaviour which is not consistent with where we want to be. We want to be a business which is attuned to modern New Zealand. That's what we want to be. But any organisation, I suspect you would find some pockets of behaviour which is not consistent with the values of the organisation. RNZ. Not RNZ. Definitely not RNZ. No, RNZ (laughs) in every single organisation. But you've talked, I think, in other interviews about, you know, meeting people that have been in radio and you're struck by the fact they've all been there 30, 40 years. Yes, the question is, how many of those people that you've met that have been there 30, 40 years are women? That was one of the real uh, surprises for me when I was going through the interview process, Aiden, actually, because when I looked at our board of directors and I looked at our direct report team to the CEO, it was stark that we didn't have enough diversity. And I made it clear to the shareholders and the chairman that I wasn't going to take this role on unless we had a true and real commitment to creating gender diversity. And And you'll see that there are women in the industry, but from what I hear from people, there are women that enter the industry and they encounter this culture Mm. of sexual harassment, otherwise bullying, and they flame out. And how many women do you have that are actually lasting in that industry for 30 or 40 years, like you say? And I think that's a great question. And what we've done in the last 12 weeks is we've got two independent female directors. 
my direct retort team has gone from one female to four, so we've got 50% um, gender diversity on our executive team now. And I am absolutely committed to look at things like content directors and right through the organisation because that was one of the big differences I've seen from aviation to media is that there just hasn't been that commitment to diversity in this segment, which has been really surprising for me and a bit frustrating, I suspect, for people in the business. I'm guessing that'll be part of that review. Now, just one other thing with the terms of reference and the inquiry by Maria Ducusi. When some of the reporting about it came out, MediaWorks, I think probably through a spokesperson, said that there had been inaccuracies that had been printed on social media. Is that really an appropriate statement, given that there is an inquiry going on? Is that preempting its results in some way? No, I think that's probably an attempt for um, the organisation to predict some of the people who are feeling uh, at some stage that the organisation wasn't um, protecting them. So I don't think that's something that we want to follow through on. The reality is we just want the review to be independent, we want it to be proactive, and we want it to be really professionally run well away from MediaWorks management and executive. On to other business. You sure? I think, we should, <laughs> I think we should move on. So on to the other business, the potential arrival of our public media behemoth, yes. Yes. the combination of TVNZ and RNZ. Are you concerned? I know that you're not in the TV business anymore. Are you concerned about uh, its arrival in the next few years? Um, I wouldn't call our view concerned. So clearly if it was less commercial, that would free up some advertising revenue for the advertising profit pool and that would be quite beneficial for all commercial media arms. If it was more commercial, well, that would have the opposite effect. You so, think that you're actually at risk if, if, for instance, it becomes this huge commercial buyer, like that could take money that might have been spent on radio advertising away from your business? Oh, I mean, I think if it was structured to be purely commercial, all media organisations who were commercial, whether it was staff or NZME or ourselves, would have some concerns. I'm a big supporter of public media, and I think it would be fantastic um, to bring all this organisation together. We just want the objectives and the terms of reference to be really clear so everyone knows um, how it's going to be structured, what the desire of the combined entity will be, and how much of it will be commercial and how much of it will be publicly funded. One of the things that you lost when you split off with three uh, was your dedicated newsroom. You had all of that online resource. You had all these employees. You're a news junkie by your own admission. Is that something that you're looking to address? Yeah, so we still have a a special relationship with Discovery through what we call transitional service agreement, but also a news relationship. So that's part of our strategic review to say, what part of the news business do we want to be in? There's some indication that you might be interested in acquiring an organisation like the spin-off or Newsroom. So we don't want to rule anything in and we don't want to rule anything out. But obviously they play a very important part of the new media landscape. Having said that, radio does face some pretty long-term challenges, Mm. right? Millennials are listening less to radio than any generation before. That great ally, the car is going a little bit more out of fashion and should go more out of fashion as time goes on. Mm. What do you see as your business's 
long-term future, particularly in that radio arm? If I look at radio for the last five to ten years, it's been a lot more resilient than other components of the media industry and a lot more resilient than I would have anticipated. So whilst there's been some dilution of you know time spent listening, the reality is the numbers are higher and more robust than I had anticipated. The challenge for us is how do we adapt and grow I'm using different that it's tools? it's going to reach this tipping point. I remember when newspapers were like, oh, our business model is strong and, and things were growing and then it really tipped off pretty quickly once technology actually got to the point where it infiltrated people's lives. You know, audio businesses, they have to adapt, they have to change, and we have to probably remove some of our reliance on advertising uh, and kind of move into different models, be that subscription, be that kind of uh, generated content, be it um, more podcasts. Those are the different things, ways and means we're thinking about how we develop and, and drive the business for the future. Thank you very much, Cam Wallace. Okay, thank you. Cam Wallace, the Chief Executive at MediaWorks, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. Welcome to the show. Well, that is just brilliant and welcome news. I don't know if you feel the same as me, but I'm very stoked to hear that. Finally, the Trans-Tasman bubble will be happening. It will be kicking off on the 19th of April, which, of course, is no surprise to anybody, given that the airlines have been selling tickets from around about there for the last month or so. We have been hearing for the last month that that is the date. That was News Talk ZB's Drive host Heather Duplessy-Allen shortly after the Prime Minister announced quarantine-free travel to Australia would begin in two weeks. And like others in the media, she reckoned that she knew what she called New Zealand's worst-kept secret in advance anyway. The AM show that morning was reporting that Air New Zealand was selling flights from the 19th of April already. And across the ditch, the front-page lead in the national daily The Australian had that date, or even the 12th of April, as a possibility as well. And while Heather Duplessy-Allen was stoked at that outcome on Tuesday, she wasn't as stoked up as her ZB colleague Chelsea Daniels, a reporter originally from Adelaide. How excited are you? Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) It's been such a long time coming. And with family still in Australia, you can understand why it was emotional for them. Since I've been away, my nana, like within the last year, my nana has been diagnosed with dementia. Mm. Um, So I already know from phone calls and FaceTimes and things like that that I'm not going home. Uh, Sorry. It's all right. (laughs) To the woman I left. Um, So I think that is the most important thing. At the moment. Yeah, to see your nana. Yeah. Oh, I know the feeling. <laughs> oh, you've made me teary. Sorry, sorry. I, pro- okay. I promised I wouldn't do it. <laughs> it's okay. I know, I know. It's hard. But with emotions running so high, it was a risky call to put a call into Chelsea's mum live on the air later without telling her. You talk to your mum, okay? Yeah. Hello? Hey, mum. Oh, my God, it's she. I'm thinking, well, private number, who the f- Mum, you're on the radio. I beg your pardon? Oh, you're on the radio, Mum. You're joking me. Yeah. Please tell me you're joking No, me. I'm not joking, babe, but that's okay. But while Chelsea's mum in Adelaide credited our Prime Minister for the imminent reunion... Isn't this wonderful news? God bless Jacinta, she came through. Oh, good. Oh, brilliant. Opposition politicians and other hosts on ZB, for that matter, were not offering our PM many thanks, reckoning instead that the bubble would have been blown up long ago if she and her people hadn't insisted on an overabundance of caution. 
but not everybody wanted to get together with people that they'd missed overseas. This guy in Queenstown, for example, told Newshub he wanted to get away from people here. I had been stuck in this prison of five million. But from the Prime Minister down, New Zealand Inc. was using the prison of five million, as that bloke put it, as a selling point. The vibes coming from the tourism and hospitality businesses, never backward in coming forward about their plight with the borders closed, were channelled like this on News Hub at 6 last Tuesday. Towns and businesses that depend on international tourists say today's announcement will save thousands of jobs. While many acknowledge the bubble may not be the silver bullet, they also point out Aussies spend twice as much as Kiwis. And leaving aside that bullets are usually fatal to bubbles, in a metaphor as mixed up as that, Heather Duplessy-Allen said on ZB it was actually a bigger deal than just a travel bubble. Being able to travel across the Tasman, which of course is significant in and of itself, but the significance here really is that this is a new chapter that we are walking into as a country. This is now putting behind Fortress New Zealand, taking a little bit more risk and being part of the next part of the pandemic, which is opening up again and getting back into it. I think a lot of people will be reasonably afraid of that. But how much confidence we should have in the bullish predictions of an immediate flood of free-spending Australians boosting the coffers of our businesses, Heather Duplessy-Allen reckoned, was an open question. Shortly after, her Australian correspondent, Murray Olds, told Heather Duplessy-Allen this. Uh, A lot of older people are saying, perhaps not, I don't want to go anywhere until because I feel safe in Australia, Mm. uh, and I don't want to go anywhere where I might be compromised in terms of my health, but look, a lot of young people are saying, gee, just get us out of here, we want to go somewhere. And News Hub's Australian reporter Emma Cropper found similar reticence over there. But a lot of the Australians I've been talking to over here, most of them will just wanting to be going over to reunite rather than looking at holidays because they are still quite nervous. But there was no such reticence in reporting Tourism New Zealand's estimated benefits of $1 billion a year once Australian tourists can come. And that was also the focus on News Hub at 6 on Wednesday. Tēnā tātou katoa, good evening. Get ready for the Aussie invasion. A record number of Air New Zealand Trans-Tasman tickets have been sold since the bubble with Australia was announced yesterday. And tourism operators are busy preparing for the influx, with interest up 100-fold. That 100-fold figure came from Greg Foran, Chief Executive of Air New Zealand, and is, of course, coming off a very low base. Meanwhile, Infometrics senior economist Brad Olson told Newstalk ZB that a $1 billion figure was actually based on 800,000 tourists coming to New Zealand, a target that may be hard to hit, given that travel is now a flyer-beware affair. Well, I mean, we've heard Tourism New Zealand come out with their billion-dollar figure. Um, I mean, you do wonder if we're going to get just that quantity quite so quickly. I think that's based on something like 800,000 uh, Aussie visitors. That, that's still quite a lot coming through. Uh, you know, that's about half of, of a normal year's worth uh, moving around. So, uh, you know, there are some big numbers being put forward there. And Brad Olson from Infometrics went on to make this point. I'm also interested in how many of us Kiwis hop across the ditch and take our tourism money away from that domestic market uh, back overseas because I feel like there's still quite a lot of exploring of our backyards that people are keen to do. Another economist, John Caron, also noted that the economic benefits might be dented by local consumers here diverting their spending to holidays in Australia, while another economist, Benji Patterson, said the bubble's effects were likely to be uneven in New Zealand. He estimated broadly that if there were 60% of pre-COVID levels of patronage, the net gains for major centres would be close to $225 million compared to last year. And that's a figure not seized on by the bubble-happy media. 
On News Hub at 6 on Wednesday, Tom McRae was reporting from a near-deserted Auckland International Airport and talking up the numbers of New Zealanders who might be taking their dollars out of this country. It's pretty quiet here at Auckland Airport in 12 days' time. This is going to be a hive of activity. To give you an idea of just how much interest there has been on this side of the Tasman, the Department of Internal Affairs have released some numbers around passports. 400,000 of them have expired in the past year. Since the bubble was announced yesterday afternoon, they have seen a massive spike in people looking to renew their passport. And where there's pent-up demand, there's big money spent up on advertising and the promotional push is coming from the very top. New Zealand has sent in its number one travel agent to sell the great Kiwi holiday across the Tasman. And live from the Beehive, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern joins me now. Prime Minister, good morning to you. And Ardern beginning her billion-dollar sales pitch to Australians. And there's that billion-dollar figure again. News Hub's Emma Cropper reported significant sums were also being spent on advertising this place on the other side of the upcoming bubble and that we should get ready from an ad blitz from there to here as well. But at times, Tourism Inc. has also been advertising to us already, even if we didn't know it. For example, at 8.30 on the night that the Trans-Tasman bubble was announced, TV1 viewers would have seen episode 8 of Lap of Luxury, an hour-long show taking viewers inside what the show calls the country's most indulgent accommodation experiences. doesn't get much better than this. It makes you very proud of the country you live in. We visit New Zealand's most magnificent lodges and the visionaries behind them. The heart of this place is the people. In this spectacular new series. That show, made by the local company Screen Time, features lodges that are all available for hire from one single company, making it a pretty good ad for that. And the credits for the show acknowledge the assistance of both Tourism New Zealand and Tourism Australia. But while it's pretty clear that Lap of Luxury isn't any kind of documentary, not so How We Work, which you'll find in TVNZ On Demand's documentary and factual section. It's made by Nigel Latter's company Ruckus to answer this COVID-era question. How does work work when we're online? Are there good things that can only happen when we're all gathered together in the same place? I'm going to look at the science to see what differences there are between working online and working together in person. Now in that show, Nigel Latter gets innovative Kiwi business people to collaborate on a project online and sometimes in ways that baffled them. No. <laughs> I wasn't sure what the point of it was, but it's Nigel Latter. He has his reasons for everything, doesn't he? <laughs> and the real reason for this show was to show that business is much better done face-to-face, which means travelling the country more. Greater connection, engagement, productivity and creativity are only possible when we get together in person. Yet the only hint from Nigel Latter that Tourism New Zealand was picking up the tab for all this came right at the very end of the credits. Thanks, Tourism New Zealand. The travel bubble announced last Tuesday was also the major talking point when News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking squared up to the Prime Minister the following morning for their first encounter on his breakfast show since the PM pulled out of their regular weekly on-air chat. And afterwards, Mike Hosking didn't seem sure how it had turned out last Wednesday. Appreciate your time. Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister. How do you reckon that went? Some feedback shortly. In the end, it turned out a bit badly for Mike Hosking. He was even told off in print by his colleague Barry Soper and on air that day. I hope Mike Hosking was listening to that exchange. (laughs) What do you mean by that? 
Well, of course, uh, he doesn't want her on, a pro- on his program anymore. Earlier, it had a go at journalists for not answering, uh, asking her the right questions. So, um, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't uh, have it... Uh, you can't have him uh, banning him her from his program, even though she did uh, And did then complaining herself. about other people not asking questions. And then questions. complaining about other people not asking her questions here. Well, the next day, Mike Hosking apologised to Barry Soper on the air, but whether he can rebuild his relationship with the Prime Minister... We'll have to see. I took a look at that spat in this week's Midweek Media Watch with Karen Hay on The Lately Show, where we also chatted about trains, planes and buses, beefed up business coverage and a tramping mag that made a fool out of the Department of Conservation recently. If you missed it, Midweek Media Watch is available for you on the Media Watch page at rnz.co.nz, the RNZ app, or it's in our podcast feed. Find that wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's all we have for you this week. We'll be back again with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, though, with Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.